It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I am seeing something really weird on TV. It's this spectacle of people, they're like sitting around a table and they're talking to each other as part of the show. I haven't seen that in a very, very long time. Obviously, some of these programs now coming back from all the pandemic restrictions. Uh, You know, the downside is you don't get to see people's living rooms, their dens, what's in the kitchen. But the plus side is it's so much better to have an actual conversation in person. And now that I'm back in the studio, I can't wait, probably a couple months away before I can get guests back in the studio where everybody feels comfortable with that. It is just so much better than the boxes. You know, everything's TV now is boxes. You know, you got six people up. It's like Hollywood Squares. But I'm glad it's another sign, you know, as cities reopen, Broadway is reopening, uh, Bruce Springsteen's coming back to Broadway with his show, uh, California is about to reopen, uh, no dropping the mask mandates, and television, news at least, is starting to look like television news. Um, I hope you'll stay to the end of the podcast here. This is not just a tease, but I have a remarkable story that you probably may not have heard about, uh, about a figure uh, who's a force on Twitter, who's had uh, just a stunning uh, checkered history, shall we say. I'm just struggling for the right word there. I got a lot of apologies to get to here. We'll start with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, after almost a month, yesterday she actually apologized for these incredibly offensive comments she made about the Holocaust. Uh, These were so offensive that the leaders of her own Republican Party denounced those comments. It had to do with, you know, anytime you bring up Nazi analogies in American politics, you're going to lose. It's going to end badly. Uh, She compared the House mask mandate in the House of Representatives, uh, presided over by Nancy Pelosi, to the killing of six million Jews. You know, why this ever came out of her mouth? I know she said a lot of inflammatory things over the years. This was really, really bad. So having waited so long, she decided to sort of make it an orchestrated rollout. She visited the Holocaust Museum and she talked to reporters at a news conference. I've made a mistake. It's really bothered me for a couple of weeks now. I definitely want to own it, she said. Uh, the Holocaust, there's nothing comparable to it. It happened. Over 6 million Jewish people were murdered. The horrors of the Holocaust are something that some people don't even believe happened and some people deny but there was no comparison to the Holocaust. There are words that I've said and remarks that I have made that I know are offensive, and for that, I want to apologize. Now, she had some separate comments where she compared the Democratic Party, which she calls the Socialist Party, to the Nationalist Socialist Party, which was the formal name of the Nazi Party. She did not apologize for that. Also, an apology, uh, and I'm not making these comparable, but th- these both happened yesterday. Uh, Chuck Schumer Senate Majority Leader apologized for using a very offensive word. It's a word that was very common when I was growing up in Brooklyn, when Schumer was growing up in Brooklyn, and then, you know, certainly far beyond New York. Um, and he was actually trying to say something nice or positive about people who are mentally impaired. And he was on a podcast. And what he said was, you know, when I was first uh, an assemblyman, a state assemblyman in New York, they wanted to build a congregate living place for retarded children. The whole neighborhood was against it. These are harmless kids. They just needed some help. Okay, we don't use the word retarded anymore and haven't for a very, very long time. It's a horribly insulting and offensive word. Again, it's one of those things, you know, like in the 1960s, we call people Negroes. You don't do that anymore. 
and, and Schumer should have known better. Um, now, he didn't apologize personally the way that at least uh, Congresswoman Green did. Uh, he had his office put out a statement. But the statement said, for decades, Senator Schumer has been an ardent champion for enlightened policy and full funding of services for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. He is sincerely sorry for his use of the outdated and hurtful language. And I'm sure he is. I would have had more punch if at least the statement had put, it, put out in his name. But Schumer calculated, you know, that if he says it, it's going to get a lot. This kind of flew under the radar. It was on a podcast that was posted on Sunday. So he kind of calculated that this would be drawing more attention to something a lot of people hadn't even heard about. Also apologizing, Chrissy Teigen, uh, you know, she has done some awful things um, uh, online where she has gone after, uh, for example, uh, the singer Courtney Sutton uh, said that, that Chrissy Teigen would just would just send her these messages saying, oh, she would tweet about wanting me to take a dirt nap. She would privately DM me and tell me to kill myself. Things like, I can't wait for you to die. I mean, I don't, I can't square that with her personality, but she is totally owning it. Uh, it's been a very humbling few weeks, she said in a long post on Medium. I know you don't want to hear about me, but I want you to know I've been sitting in a hole of deserved global punishment. The ultimate sit here and think about what you've done. Not a day, not a single moment has passed where I haven't felt the crushing weight of regret for the things I've said in the past. As you know, a bunch of my old awful, awful, awful tweets resurfaced. I'm truly ashamed of them. As I look at them and understand the hurt they caused, I have to stop and wonder how could I have done that. And Chrissy Teigen goes on. There's simply no excuse for my past horrible tweets. My targets didn't deserve them. No one does. Many of them needed empathy, kindness, understanding, and support, not my meanness masquerading as a kind of casual, edgy humor. Well, that's a pretty good apology, but, you know, what she did was pretty terrible, as she now is the first to acknowledge. Uh, in the PC realm, why does liberalism sometimes become just a sheer parody of itself? So now, the Department of Health and Human Services in the Biden administration, in a document, no longer uh, refers to mothers. No, they are now birthing people because mothers might be offensive to somebody. What? Are you serious? I mean, this is the kind of thing that's just laughed out of the court of public opinion. And there was a hearing. The HHS Secretary, uh, Javier Becerra, was testifying last week. I went to get to this the other day. And Oklahoma Senator James Langford said basically like WTF with his birthing people. And then uh, Becerra didn't quite know what to say. Oh, we're going to check the language. But we, did, we wanted to be precise. Okay whatever, however you define your gender, the only people who birth on planet Earth are mothers. I just don't get it. Okay, uh, some sad news, uh, or not totally sad news, from CNN uh, international correspondent, Christiane Amanpour. Uh, she said that she has undergone surgery for cancer, uh, that she's now, uh, will undergo uh, chemo for a couple of weeks. And she turned it into a teachable moment. I've had major surgery. I'm undergoing several months of chemotherapy for the best possible long-term prognosis. I'm confident. Always listen to your bodies, she told people, that your legitimate medical concerns are not dismissed or diminished. She also praised Britain's National Health Service. So we certainly wish her the best. Monica Lewinsky has founded her own company called Alt Ending. Uh, she's a Vanity Fair contributor. You know, good for her to be able to kind of uh, restart her career. 
she is finishing up the latest American Crime Story anthology series for FX called Impeachment, American Crime Story. Well, guess whose impeachment it's about, of course. And they've got a bunch of uh, actors and actresses lined up. Clive Owen as Bill Clinton. Edie Falco as Hillary Clinton. Uh, who plays Monica? Uh, Booksmart's Beanie Feldstein stars as the former White House intern. I'm not familiar with Beanie, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, I would watch that. And I'm, I'm just glad that Monica Lewinsky, who undergood, underwent a lot of bullying and humiliation in her life for the mistakes that she made when she was, you know, 21, 22, um, now has a thriving career. All right, number one, President Biden in Brussels getting ready for the big Putin showdown tomorrow in Geneva. Uh, he gave another news conference. This is good. You know, Biden's given regular news conferences. That's much more than he usually does. Um, he went after the Republicans in a way that made me a little uncomfortable. Not that he shouldn't talk about the Republicans, but there used to be, and this was completely and totally ignored by Donald Trump. So Republicans who were like, Biden should not have done this. He shouldn't have criticized the other party because politics stops at the water's edge. Well, that was always the prevailing view uh, among American diplomats and presidents and members of Congress, but it kind of got blown up, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, Trump would rip Democrats. Uh, it didn't matter what country he was in. Nevertheless, I think Biden could have taken the high road here. Uh, he says, we have to root out corruption and siphons off his strength. He was trying to make a comparison between democracies dealing with their problems and communist regimes, such as the one headed by the aforementioned Vladimir, um, will prove that democracy and our alliance can still prevail against the challenges of our time. Then he goes off on the Republicans. The president was asked, what are you saying to people about whether or not your changes will still be in effect after four years? He says, I'm saying, watch me. They believe I keep my commitments. Um, Responding to a question about how American allies were rattled by the attack on the Capitol, Biden said, I think it's a shock and surprise what happens in terms of the consequence of President Trump's phony populism has happened. So direct shot at his predecessor, and look, who attacks him regularly, I don't have any problem. It's, it's unusually strong language for Biden, who usually tries to deflect questions about Trump, but it did take place on foreign soil. Biden also said it was disappointing to see some Republicans reluctant to take on an investigation into the insurrection, quote, because they're worried about getting primaried. Uh, but then he went on to say, you know, this will pass and the American people are strong and all of that. Speaking of Biden, you know, SNL may be pre uh, pretending that Joe Biden doesn't exist, but uh, Dana Carvey, who did such a great George H.W. Bush, you know, wouldn't be prudent, not going to go there, uh, was on with Stephen Colbert, who just came back in the studio, and I'll come back to Colbert in a moment, uh, and did a devastating bite. You know, he's just all full of like, okay, you know, that thing that we talked about, it's hard for me, but here's the deal. And it's just, you know, just getting, he's just tripping over his words. It's very funny. Not mean, I don't think. Uh, and I'm sure we'll see more of that. All right, let's move on to number two, because uh, I, I do want to save time for some of these stories at the end. Um, uh, we already knew that after Bill Barr resigned as Attorney General back in December with just a few weeks left to go in the Trump administration, and clearly, you know, after finding that there were no, uh, there was no widespread fraud in the election despite what his boss was saying, Barr said, okay, I'm out of here, it's time to get out. We already knew that Donald Trump had pressured um, the Department of Justice to pursue 
his claims, his unproven claims, I should add, of election fraud. But now the New York Times has obtained a whole batch of emails that really add a lot of detail. And I'll tell you how the New York Times obtained it, because the clue is in the story. Uh, The House Oversight Committee um, either subpoenaed this or able to obtain this from DOJ, and quoted in the story is the chairwoman of the House Oversight Committee. Um, Give me a second here. And quoted in the story is the chairwoman of the committee, Carolyn Maloney. So that's how it works. You know, a committee gets documents, leak them to a news outlet, and then there's the understanding that not only the committee, but the chairman or chairwoman of the committee will be prominently mentioned. I once had Al Gore call me at home when he was a congressman, but he was running for the Senate well before, you know, his VP days. And his office had given me uh, a scoop of some kind, some documents. And he called me to, you know, kind of provide the requisite quotes. And, you know, it's always an unspoken understanding. And this is true of Democrats and Republicans. You know, if you are getting an exclusive, the person who's giving an exclusive wants to get some credit in the story. But Gore wasn't, it wasn't enough to rely on the outspoken understanding. He said, look, you know, I just want to make sure that I get the credit here because I'm in a tough race and so forth. And I said, you know, of course, that's the way it works. I don't have any problem with it because in a way it's me giving credit to the source uh, of the story. Um, and in a way, if you quote the congressman, the senator, whoever it is, you're being more transparent about it. Anyway, in this New York Times story, the emails say the following. President Trump, um, these were emails he dictated to an assistant, uh, writing to Jeff Rosen, the acting attorney general, uh, saying, hey, I want you to investigate uh, allegations of election fraud in northern Michigan. The same claims that a federal judge had just thrown out a week earlier in a lawsuit filed by one of Trump's lawyers. Another email from Trump to Rosen a couple of weeks later. Um, a draft of a brief that Trump wanted DOJ to file to the Supreme Court, arguing that state officials had used the pandemic to weaken election security and pave the way for election fraud. And it echoed claims in a suit uh, filed by uh, the state attorney general in Texas that had just been thrown out. So Trump was trying to get a do-over by having the Justice Department kind of refile some of the same allegations that completely failed when various Trump-allied people or state AGs uh, filed them. And Rosen was being pressured to meet with uh, a guy who was making these allegations, one of the proponents of this conspiracy, his name was Brad Johnson. And Trump got so fed up with the guy who you know, had been in the job for two weeks, and he, was, he almost replaced Rosen with another guy, Jeffrey Clark, who was the acting head of the civil division of DOJ. Anyway, here's Rosen in an email. I learned that this guy Johnson, leading proponent of conspiracy, is working with Rudy Giuliani, who regarded my comments as an insult. Asked if I would reconsider, this is Rosen speaking in the email, I flatly refused, said I would not be giving any special treatment to Giuliani or any of his, quote, witnesses, and reaffirmed yet again that I will not talk to Giuliani about any of this. Uh, So then there's a quote from Carol Maloney, President Trump tried to corrupt our nation's chief law enforcement agency, and so on. Um, It's just, you know, so Jeffrey Rosen, who was put in to be the more pliable guy as AG, he drew the line. He said, I'm not meeting with this guy. And then there's this very comical account of how this 
Guy Johnson, you know, kept sending emails and texts and then drove to Washington uh, to try to get a meeting with the acting attorney general, which he apparently never got. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's move on to number three. Uh, the Senate yesterday confirming Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the U.S. Court of Appeals to Merrick Garland's old seat. Uh, she is widely touted as a potential Supreme Court nominee if there would be an opening for President Biden. But what does Mitch McConnell have to say about this? So Mitch McConnell did an interview with the conservative um, radio host Hugh Hewitt. And McConnell just comes out and says it. He uh, and the Republicans will most likely block any Supreme Court nominee put forth by Biden in 2024. He would say, what are you going to do in 2024 if Republicans regain control of the Senate? Quote, I think in the middle of a presidential election, if you have a Senate of the opposite party of the president, you have to go back to the 1880s to find the last time a vacancy was filled. So I think it's highly unlikely. Okay, this is where we pause and say, yes, Mitch McConnell essentially single-handedly blocked President Obama with nine months to go in his term from naming Merrick Garland. I mean, named him, but he couldn't get him even a hearing to the Supreme Court. But with just a few weeks to go in President Trump's first term, Mitch McConnell was happy to ram through um, Amy Coney Barrett, who now sits on the Supreme Court. So, you know, politicians basically, when they, and McConnell's a great example. He's all about wielding power. Um, he's a little more straightforward about it in some ways. You know, you had one position a year ago, a new situation comes up, people say, aren't you being a hypocrite? Didn't you change your position? You, you just say, no, 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 that was then, this is now, this is different, you come up with some idea. In McConnell's case, it's like, it's not okay to do it if the Senate is of the opposite party of the president, but it is okay to do it if the Senate is of the same party of the president. Uh, like, why? What, what does that have to do with anything? But what this does is McConnell, you know, he's not being coy about this. He's saying, uh-uh. Well, now, what if he does it in 2023? In other words, what if the, the, the Republicans take over the Senate and the midterms next year and there's an opening? And then can, can, will McConnell just say, well, you know, I know it's only 2023, but the campaign is really already underway. So I'm not confirming anybody. What this does is send a very clear signal to the 82-year-old Justice Stephen Breyer a couple of weeks left in the court's term, a lot of liberals, a lot of Democrats want him to retire so that while the Dems still have the Senate majority, President Biden can name a much younger replacement. Breyer has given no indication he plans to do that, but I think that this will even ratchet up the pressure on him even more. Of course, it's entirely up to Justice Breyer what he wants to do. Number four, um, John Stewart was on uh, Stephen Colbert's Late Show on CBS last night. Of course, they used to be colleagues on The Daily Show, and Stewart ran that. And it's really interesting. So he was in the studio. This was Colbert's comeback to the studio, and so they're on set together. And what uh, thing, what subject, uh, what radioactive topic did Jon Stewart choose uh, for this important appearance? The Wuhan lab leak theory. And this recalls John Stewart at his best. I mean, look, John Stewart was obviously liberal. He obviously spent a lot of time going after Bush. He kind of retired before Trump. He was very friendly to Obama. But there were times when he would give it to both sides. And that's what Stewart is doing here. Because remember, you couldn't even say what John Stewart said on CBS last night on Facebook, or you would have your post removed. And that is, he basically came out, and he tried to do it in this sort of funny, joshing way, and completely endorsed the notion that COVID-19 was created in the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. 
he goes on. I honestly mean this. I think we owe a great debt of gratitude to science. Science has in many ways helped ease the suffering of this pandemic, which was more than likely caused by science. Colbert, do you mean that this was uh, possibly started in a lab? A chance, says John Stewart. Oh, my God. There's a novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know, who could we ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. Uh, John says, it's a little too weird that the outbreak began in the same city as a lab studying these types of viruses. He compared it to, uh, okay, oh my God, there's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. What do you think happened? He also said, he, he didn't say it was a conspiracy theory. He said, look, scientists don't know when to stop. Can I say this about scientists? I love them and they do such good work, but they are going to kill us all. He pointed to the atomic bomb. If you cut the atom this way, it can power the world with electricity. If you cut it that way, it can blow everything up. Guess which one we tried first. That's just who we are. Now, remember, the mainstream media, for, for more than a year, either ignored or mocked or minimized the very thing that John Stewart is talking about. Now, you say, well, John Stewart, what does he know? He's not a scientist. He's just a comedian. He's a social critic. And... John and I have had many rounds. I've interviewed him many times. I was once on The Daily Show. He was once on my show. He's a really smart guy, uh, you know, having talked to him off camera. And we tangled many times because I called him out when he basically, you know, just beat up on Republicans and gave Democrats a pass, and he would go after me on his show. And look, it was in both of our interests to do that. I was also on Colbert's show back in his Comedy Central days. Uh, and he, of course, is a completely out-of-the-closet liberal who spent the last four years on CBS completely trashing Donald Trump, uh, obviously alienating part of his audience, but cementing his bond with those who hate Trump. And obviously, Stephen Colbert loves Joe Biden, and here he has John Stewart on. But my main point is the following. The media said this is not worthy of public discussion. Not just like we don't think this happened. Not that we sent reporters to try to figure it out. It's such a fringe conspiracy. Why? Because Donald Trump raised it. Now, was Trump doing that for his own political purposes to try to blame China? Of course. But it doesn't mean it can't be true just because Donald Trump said something. And remember, Tom Cotton said, oh, we ought to investigate. Both the New York Times and the Washington Post ran headlines saying, fringe theory, conspiracy theory. It's been debunked. Vox said it had been debunked. Now they all had to come back when more, you know, it still hasn't been proven, but there's more circumstantial evidence have come out, such as three scientists in the Wuhan lab getting sick, having to be hospitalized with COVID-like symptoms. My point is, if you haven't gotten this already, that it's not the job of journalism to say this can't even be discussed. Now, if you have evidence that says it's unlikely or it didn't happen, bring it. Bring it on. But don't take it out of the public discussion. And I haven't seen, with a couple of exceptions, any real self-examination or soul-searching about dismissing the thing that now John Stewart gets to go on The Late Show and talk about in a funny way. But nevertheless, when he does it in that funny way, he hammers home the point that it's pretty plausible. The idea that it came from a bat or an animal, that's the, that's the theory that Fauci favors. Even Fauci says, let's keep an open mind. So that was uh, Stewart on The Daily Show. And number five is the thing that I kind of teased at the top. Or maybe if you're a media insider, you know the name Yashir Ali. He's got 800,000 Twitter followers. He's written for a couple of magazines, but basically he, and he's broken a whole bunch of stories. Uh, but basically he lives on Twitter 
and does his thing on Twitter. And Los Angeles Magazine has this incredibly well-reported, well-written, and kind of chilling piece about who this guy is and what his background is. It makes you wonder, because Ali has made a lot of friends in the media. I don't know the guy. I follow him on Twitter. I've never had any interaction with him. I don't have a dog in this fight. But I didn't know mostly any of this. Uh, Ali is so influential that CNN President Jeff Zucker went on the record in this L.A. Magazine piece to say uh, Yasher has an incredible Twitter feed with several personalities within it. He's not just an investigative reporter. He's not just an animal lover. He's not just a bon vivant and a man about town. He's all those things, and that's actually what makes him so interesting. So Zucker's talking about him. Jake Tapper is on the record in this piece talking about him. But here's some other things. So first, let me give you the description, because I think a lot of people just don't know Yashar Ali. He was a political operative at one point in democratic politics in California. Then he became a social media muckraker. He, one of his most recent targets was Sharon Osborne. He reported that she had, she totally, completely denies this, had, had made uh, uh, racist or ethically insensitive comments about some of her fellow uh, panelists on the talk. She's now out of the talk as a result of those stories, and obviously CBS looked into it. Um, he has hurt the cabinet chances, according to this uh, report, of the mayor of L.A., Eric Garcetti. He helped cancel uh, former New York Times food writer Allison Roman and helped crush Harvey Weinstein. Um, so this piece kind of gives him his due. It also describes him as an openly gay Iranian-American convert to Catholicism who claims he attends Mass three times a week. But here's the thing. He has these relationships with people, many of them A-list celebrities, and then he has these horrible falling out. For example, uh, there's a billionaire named Susie Tompkins Buell. Uh, She's the co-founder of Esprit and the North Face, one of the Democratic Party's top donors. She's given tens of millions of dollars to Clinton's campaign, Gore, Kerry, Hillary Clinton. Ali met her at a political dinner back in 2008. They became friendly. Uh, Their relationship deepened. He advised her on art purchases. And when she would sell some of her art, he would get a commission. So there was something in it for him financially. Um, And he started referring to her as his godmother. She took him in. He eventually moved into one of her houses in California and would crash at her penthouse in Pacific Heights. Um, And yet, two years later, following some other financial disputes, Ali's relationship with Buell completely fell apart. Buell's comment was this, I cared about Yasher until I couldn't anymore because he was doing things that were unacceptable. He did a lot of good things for me, but he doesn't understand boundaries it's painful to think about. Okay, that's just one example. All right, let's move on. Ali also befriended an heiress named Rodney Getty, obviously the Getty family, the Getty oil dynasty that had backed Gavin Newsom in his political career. They became very friendly Uh, and soon he was flying in regularly from San Francisco to visit Getty at her $14 million condo uh, in Beverly Hills. Sources say the relationship began to sour after Ali started borrowing large sums of money from her. This is back in 2012. She actually filed a civil complaint against him uh, four years ago. Getty claims the loans eventually totaled $179,000, Former friends reached an agreement, which Ali promised to pay the heiress back in monthly installments. He made only two payments, 
and then he defaulted. This is according to court documents. He still owes the money. Then he, began, he had a new friend, Kathy Griffin, the comedian, whose life completely blew up after she stupidly, and I was harshly critical of this, Back in 2017, she did this photo shoot where she posted herself holding a, uh, you know, a fake head, which was supposed to be Donald Trump's head. Awful, absolutely horrible thing to do for the president, whether you like the president, whether you hate the president. And she later apologized for that, and then she took back the apology. Anyway, Ali befriended her during this time when her career was basically in the toilet. Uh, he wound up living at her mansion in Bel Air for up to nine months. Ali says, well, it was only six months. He did her grocery shopping and cooking. Uh, she let him live rent-free. She loaned him one of her cars. You know, once again, this pattern of befriending celebrities, living in their houses, borrowing money from them. Then he became increasingly reclusive, holding up in his bedroom. Finally, Kathy Griffin asked Ali to leave in 2019. Um, they ordered him an Uber and sent him on his way. Uh, here's his explanation. I've grappled with a lot uh, of... Do that again. Here's his, here's Ali's explanation. I've grappled a lot with entering into codependent relationships of all sorts. Wanting to fix things and wanting to fix too much was one of my dysfunctional behaviors. I've talked about it in therapy. He goes on to say that he's had these suicidal thoughts lately. I mean, it sounds like his life is kind of falling apart. But also, he was responsible just last year for ABC firing Barbara Fadida. She was a top executive. Um, he reported to have made racist comments when she denied it was an HR investigation. What's interesting there is they used to be friendly. They texted together. They dined together. So it's an amazing profile of somebody who's kind of like a 21st century media figure, has had a lot of impact on the media, has done some good reporting, but clearly has had some difficult relationships and falling out that he is now grappling with. And he almost never gives interviews, and that was a coup for LA Magazine. And I'm just giving you, I really recommend you read it. It's just, it's just a hell of a read. And I'm give, giving you like the highlights that I can squeeze into the podcast. Hope you're having a great day. Appreciate your being along for the ride here. Let me just give you the rundown. You can get our podcast on your Amazon device, Google Podcasts, Apple iTunes, you name it. See you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.